0: I have asked for this radio and television time. I want to take this occasion to talk to you about what that law means to every American. I have tried to educate. If I have not succeeded altogether, I have certainly educated
1: myself.
2: I see a great nation upon a great continent blessed with a great wealth of national resources. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ratified, a show on the intersection of business and policy brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of this long-form show. We always keep it long, and this is definitely no exception to the rule. This is going to be a long episode, um, definitely probably over an hour. But we have some great insights on today's episode that I just couldn't cut down in good faith. So before we get into what that subject is and who the guests are, I want to point you to Spotify and Apple Podcasts to subscribe to Ratified. We've got our own channel now on Spotify. So if you look up Ratified, you should find the show on Spotify. Make sure you're subscribing on there. For all of the episodes. You can also find these episodes on Market Scale Radio. That is another channel on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're working on getting Ratified its own channel on Apple Podcasts, but that might take a little longer. And make sure you're heading to marketscale.com slash industries. That's our main publication site. And on there you can find other episodes of Ratified. I'll make sure to link to the podcast page uh, somewhere in the post so that you can find other episodes on our site as well. And sorry again for the hiatus. It's been a little bit since the last episode. Uh, COVID-19 definitely threw a wrench in production for the show. You know, I had to put my efforts elsewhere to make sure that market scale was staying afloat. Things were still chugging along and we are doing well. Things are good. So that means that Ratified has room to come back now. And I'm very excited about this episode. It uh, is definitely still timely um, and it's a little more political than our last few episodes. Ooh, how fun. Love getting into the weeds. So let's jump in. On this episode of Ratified, we're getting our feet wet with election season content. The Democratic primary is basically all but settled. Barring some massive shakeup or dropout, Joe Biden, former vice president, will be the nominee for the Democratic Party, ending a long and tumultuous primary race. The race included Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who came in second again behind Joe Biden. Some other standouts included folks like Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar. However, we are spending today's episode doing a post-mortem on one very specific Democratic primary campaign, and that would be Mike Bloomberg 2020, a late entrance to the 2020 race, former mayor of New York City and one of the richest people in the world. Number 12, last time I checked, billionaire Mike Bloomberg created waves when he entered the Democratic primary. Progressives were not very excited. They definitely loathed his presence in the, uh, in the primary process, citing his past as a Republican and his mayoral and interpersonal workplace records as uh, disqualifying, to say the least. Moderates were hopeful that his experience and maybe more importantly, his pocketbook would make him potentially a better and more resilient choice to go against President Trump than the fading Joe Biden, who to many seemed like the other safest option. At the end of the day, Mike Bloomberg would peak at about 16.5% polling nationally, edging him into second place for a small period of time behind uh, Bernie Sanders when he was leading uh, during the Nevada primary season. However, he did eventually collapse after a poor debate performance in February and a lackluster delegate count coming out of Super Tuesday, winning only American Samoa. He'd end up walking away from the Democratic 2020 presidential primary, spending over $1 billion on the campaign. Record-setting. For a while, though, before the campaign Collapsed, imploded. Bloomberg and his campaign seemed like a force to be reckoned with, especially with his online presence. So, with today's episode of Ratified, we want to ask what went wrong, especially with the marketing, which was probably one of his strongest assets. On Ratified, we're going to unpack the most effective part of Bloomberg's campaign, which was the digital marketing strategy, in my opinion, and how the least effective part of Bloomberg's campaign, which, in my opinion, was Mike Bloomberg himself how he made the branding strategy overall difficult and insufficient. Before we get to our guests, let's get some context on the Bloomberg 2020 campaign's marketing and PR strategy. For that, it's time for the preamble. Let's jump in. All right, are y'all ready to turn on that history brain? We're gonna be rewinding the clock just a handful of months to November of 2019, which honestly, in retrospect, it feels like so long ago. It feels like a totally different world. Uh, quite literally was, but yeah, not making it rewind that far back. Just some recent memory. All right, so Mike Bloomberg made a surprise entrance into the 2020 Democratic primary in late November, running on the slogan, Mike will get it done. Already too late to file for the first four races of Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, the natural momentum builders of the race, he and his staff would have to develop a different path to victory. Bloomberg's campaign strategy was pretty simple. No other candidate could come close to the funds at his disposal. So, if he could outspend them all with a self-funded campaign, craft a digital marketing strategy that micro-targeted his content to important demographics, as well as blanket television, radio, and digital ads with his campaign's message, he'd have a real shot at winning the nomination. And that's exactly what they tried to pull off, crafting one of the tightest and multi-layered omni-channel marketing runs of the primary. Here are a few highlight or standout moments. On advertising alone, from his start in November through Super Tuesday, which was March 3rd, Bloomberg spent a whopping $528 million. And compared to his rivals in the race, that was still a lot of money. In fact, it was $190 million more than all the other contenders spending combined. And that includes co-billionaire Tom Steyer. At least 183 million of that went to TV ads alone. His 62nd spot at the Super Bowl was 11 million dollars on its own, so big spending coming out of the Bloomberg 2020 campaign. The breadth of content he was putting out there was just as wide as the spending itself. Folks are probably familiar with his get-it-done TV ads, which touted the growth of Bloomberg LP and a bootstraps background, his leadership post-9-11, and his managerial experience and expertise. He was also experimenting with digital ads, social media branding, and micro-influencer sponsorships and bringing on experienced, albeit infamous, minds to help. For example, his ad campaign strategy was run by none other than Gary Briggs, who previously was Facebook's CMO, running their PR during some of their biggest scandals, like Cambridge Analytica. Briggs' expertise informed much of the campaign's Facebook ad strategy, where Bloomberg spent more than $60 million. On social media, Bloomberg's strategy emulated a classic branding trend that we're used to on Instagram nowadays. Find influencers with a wide enough audience, sponsor one of their posts, and rake in the natural engagement. Another infamous hire joined Bloomberg for this strategy... Jerry Media or F Jerry, which are the social media promoters who helped launch the uh, disastrous fire festival. If y'all remember that one, the Bloomberg campaign went for a self-deprecating tone on these posts, crafting made up direct messages where Mike reaches out to Instagram comedians and asks for help to look cool, in quotes here, (laughs) online, often with a timely meme attached. The posts naturally got some flack from users who felt they were crossing a line or were total cringe, but they were still successful in terms of likes and engagement. So just the natural um, metrics still proved that the posts were getting some attention. His strategy even included paying social media users $2,500 a month to post positive content about Bloomberg and to reach out to their friends via text. This led to tweet storms with suspiciously similar wording, all promoting the campaign, and that in turn led Twitter to suspend 70 different platforms for spam and platform manipulation and uh, ended up creating a, a little bit of conversation around what are the extents to which social media can be used to push a campaign's message and when does it cross a line? However, even with the social media fumbles, the marketing and advertising strategy was working. Bloomberg sent out more than two billion ads across Google and Facebook. A YouGov poll found that two-thirds of registered voters had seen Bloomberg's ads on TV, so it was reaching a wide populace of these voters, and the PR narrative was so effective that Bloomberg started to lead the field in some state-specific polls like in Florida and Arkansas. But the image and narrative being sold on ads could only do so much a bombshell story on Bloomberg's stop and frisk policy, Elizabeth Warren's reckoning at the February 19th debate, and a slowly reemerging Joe Biden started the beginning of the end for Mike Bloomberg's campaign. Our guests today are going to help unpack some of the biggest reasons why Bloomberg, even with his billions and his focused digital marketing strategy, couldn't cross the finish line some really exciting insights i'm looking forward to getting to you guys One of our first guests on the program today is progressive independent journalist Benjamin Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon podcast, with a YouTube channel sporting over 35,000 dedicated followers and a Twitter reach of over 111,000 followers. He's also the founder of the publication Progressive Army. Benjamin Dixon was a critical part of shining more skeptical lights on Mike Bloomberg's campaign. He was actually the journalist who resurfaced the infamous Mike Bloomberg style. And frisk audio from his 2015 Aspen Institute speech. This was the audio that went viral and became a centerpiece talking point on news media channels and in the presidential debates to push back on some of Mike Bloomberg's campaign and his record. Benjamin joined Ratified to break down and give some context on that stop-and-frisk audio and its impact on Bloomberg's chances. He also gave some insights on how it was received by television stations like CNN and MSNBC. And we have a broader debate and discussion on how much policy and record really impacts a candidate in today's political environment. First, though, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Laura Brown director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. And Dr. Laura Brown brings a wealth of Capitol Hill knowledge, including time in President Clinton's administration, to our episode of Ratified to help us better understand some of the history around self-funded candidates, how Bloomberg's strategy appealed to certain demographics of the Democratic base and more critically, why the idea of Bloomberg didn't live up to the reality of Bloomberg for voters, even with such spending and uh, such focused digital marketing from the campaign. So we'll be right back with Dr. Brown on this episode of Ratified. We're joined on the program now by Dr. Laura Brown, director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. And before her time in academia, Dr. Brown served as a political appointee to President Clinton's administration in the U.S. Department of Education. She also uh, worked as an educational policy and public affairs consultant in L.A. and Silicon Valley. Dr. Brown, welcome. So glad to have you on the show today. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the show
2: of course how are you holding up during the pandemic i'm checking in with all my guests
0: you know i feel incredibly fortunate uh let's face it i have a job that very much can be done from home and so while i am at home and i'm on conference calls all the time and doing a lot of emails. Um, I am here and safe and have the good fortune of being able to do my work. And I know so many other people um, are in much more difficult situations than I am and my heart and my gratitude really goes out to them.
2: I'm in the same boat. Yeah, you know, just really, uh, really just trying to stay safe and do my part to not spread any disease uh, and staying home because I have the luxury too, so. Yeah. All right, so we're doing an episode on the Bloomberg 2020 campaign. So, uh, you know, your perspective is going to be very essential here to breaking down uh, kind of a, a backbone of how narrative and how marketing and how perception really plays into a presidential campaign. So I want to start here. Uh, some history and some context for self-funded candidates for the presidency. And, you know, we can use some context for... Um, gubernatorial runs, other smaller uh, state legislator runs if we need to. But um, this year alone for the Democratic primary, we saw folks like John Delaney, Tom Steyer, and of course, Bloomberg uh, all try to run with self-funding as a core part of their campaign finance. Bloomberg, of course, set records for most money spent on a self-funded campaign, nearly a billion dollars. And then just some more context. President Donald J. Trump had a chunk of his campaign self-financed. But before Bloomberg, perhaps the most consequential candidate who self-funded his campaign was Ross Perot for his independent run in 92. And other than um, President Trump's win... Basically, all of these self-funded campaigns tend to not do so well when they fare against um, more traditional establishment candidates or outsider candidates, you know, with quotes around outsiders. So what does history tell us, in your opinion, about self-funding a presidential campaign, its impact on electoral politics, and really the strategy behind (sighs) self-funding?
0: Well, I think self-funded candidates really start from a premise that they believe that the American electorate will be excited around. They say to the electorate, I am wealthy. No one can buy me. You dislike the notion of big money in politics. Well, guess what? I can't be bought. I'm really my own person. And while that does sound good, at the beginning of things, and many individuals' frustrations with money and politics kind of give rise to this sort of justification. In all practicality, what it usually means is also that these individuals have very little ties to the party that they're running for. other than maybe as a donor. And so it is also true that they haven't spent any time building coalitions, getting to know other partisans within um, that party network. They don't really have a reputation. And so as the race kind of develops, people start to say, this person's just trying to buy their way in. They don't really know anything about the party or about who is involved in politics. All they really want to do is have an office and they're just trying to buy it in the way that they buy everything.
2: Does that seem to be the assessment uh, that is most common from just your classic voter? Uh, And maybe we have to get more specific from from the Democratic base, um, because You know, there's a lot of pull with anti-establishment politics, especially nowadays, um... You know, candidates can pull a lot of favor by signaling we don't want to do things as they've been done. I am bringing a new perspective, a fresh perspective, an outsider perspective. Um, But when you're self financed, especially when you're, you know, bringing billions of dollars potentially into your campaign, um, it seems to be some cognitive dissonance of like, yes, we want an outsider, but then also you are trying to buy your way in, we want someone that isn't buying their way in. And often that leads us back to, okay, someone that is part of the more traditional establishment, right? However you want to define that. So wh- where do you think that cognitive dissonance comes from?
0: Well, I do think there's a really interesting difference at this level on the Democratic side versus the Republican side. Yeah, The Republicans have been traditionally, I would say a bit more welcoming toward major self-funders, right? Individuals who are wealthy, who jump in the race. Um, even somebody like Carly Fiorina, um, who didn't rely on, you know, a ton of her own money, but was a wealthy, um, you know, former businesswoman, CEO, and did jump in the race. You saw Herman Kane also a wealthy Business individual jump in the race. Um, And that was sort of more of an accepted archetype or model for the Republicans. Um, The Democrats, they tend to like their outsiders not necessarily to be wealthy, but to be able to raise a lot of money from small dollars, um, donors. So their outsiders fit much more with the Bernie Sanders model. Uh, But really, we saw that first with Howard Dean and then, in fact, Barack Obama. Um, It was really Barack Obama in 2008 who uh, raised as much money in the first quarter of 2007 as did Hillary Clinton, about $20 million. But much of Barack Obama's money was uh, small-dollar donations. And that, in so many ways, put him on the map as her central challenger in that nomination year. Right.
2: All right. So let's get specific now on Bloomberg. Um, give me some initial thoughts. We'll get into some specific uh, targeted talking points and talking areas, I guess. But I want to just get your overall perception on why Mike Bloomberg's multi-million dollar campaign didn't secure the nomination, even with all the money setting records, um, launching innovative digital ad strategy and uh, really consuming the airwaves from television to Facebook. Why didn't that secure us the nomination?
0: Well, I think Michael Bloomberg, interestingly enough, just wasn't as good in reality as his ad campaign and the rest of his campaign had made him out to be. And this is where you know, most political scientists don't like to sort of focus on the personality or the candidate. They really like to think about the structure of a campaign and sort of the differences that might exist in the within the context of different elections. But I think what is important and should always be a part of the analysis is understanding that candidates matter. Who the person is matters, and whether or not they can translate sort of their appeal on paper to the voters is an important um, aspect of this. And I think Michael Bloomberg had a very real justification on paper for getting in the race. His advertising and the money he was spending was also very attractive and persuasive to the sort of subset of the Democratic electorate that was looking for somebody to take on Donald Trump. But then when it came to his debate performance, um, his inability to kind of match his image that had already been kind of manufactured uh, just really made his campaign fall apart.
2: So, let's get into what he was selling, I guess, for lack of a better word right? Yeah. what what? What was yeah. he pitching? What did resonate with voters at least initially? Um, because I, I think he did have a surface level pitch that clearly resonated in polling. So what was catching people's interest? You know, let's let's break down what that pitch was, it could be policy wise, it could be narrative, it could be his personality. um, It could be, you know, any mix of the three.
0: What are your thoughts? So I think what he was selling is first and foremost, this idea that he could get it done and that his get it done mantra to many Democrats also resonated with the idea that he could beat Donald Trump. So one of the things we have to understand about the context of 2020 is that this is an incumbent reelection race. There is an incumbent, he is very unpopular, the Democratic uh, constituency, he has no sort of favorability among Democrats, and Democrats have really been wanting uh, to toss him from office very shortly after he was actually declared um, president. I mean, there is no doubt that his approval rating among Democrats was never um, a majority approved of him. So we have to understand that Democrats want Trump uh, to lose. And in wanting Trump to lose, they are highly strategic in how they are thinking about this election. They are not as interested in falling in love as they are interested in sort of falling in line, falling in line behind the person that they believe is the most electable. And this is where Bloomberg really came in. His idea that he could get it done was important. It was also important that he was from New York, was a wealthy billionaire, and had some mayoral experience, so that at some level, he could take Donald Trump on on not just um, kind of the idea that he would know how to run things because he ran as mayor the largest city for 12 years, but also this idea that he has run businesses his entire life and is more successful than Donald Trump in terms of creating jobs, creating um, a massive corporation, and doing it all himself. Um, He did not inherit the money from his father to start his business. So I really think that what it bought him was, um, it sort of bought him the exposure and it bought him an opening. And that's usually in some ways what the money does. You know, because oftentimes um, we do think about these nomination races as being a time when partisans are saying to themselves, who do we want to represent our party? Where do we wanna come out from both kind of a character standpoint as well as how that the character of the candidate lends to a narrative about our policy story? And when you look at, at the actual democratic field, the democratic field had two very strong progressives in terms of Sanders and Warren, and then it had a lot of moderates. And the moderates, for better or for worse, each had kind of a strength and a weakness. And the problem was was that Vice President Biden at that point in time when Bloomberg entered into the race did not appear to be in any way strong. He did not appear as though he could rally the moderates behind him and that he would be sort of the choice of the majority of the Democrats. So you had this sense where there was an opening and Bloomberg's money helped make that aperture wider and gave him essentially the floor. And then when he stepped onto that stage, and it really did happen at the Nevada debate, um, he just wasn't able to put forth the justification or the rationale for his own candidacy and persuade enough Democrats that, yes, he really was the one to rally behind.
2: So let's get into the different vehicles that allowed for that opening to happen in the first place. Um, The different... I guess media styles I want to break down with you are earned media, paid media, and owned media. So earned media being uh, television news, uh, newspapers, journalism, or content that is about Bloomberg without him necessarily. Um, having direct influence over it happening. Paid media, of course, being advertising, and then owned media being his social channels and his content that he was creating to try to also uh, you know, push his campaign. So let's start with earned media. Um, I think as a billionaire candidate, given his national presence, given uh, his history in politics, him announcing that he's going to run uh, is a big news story. And I think he naturally got a lot of earned media because of his name and his background and who he is as a person. So he was immediately taken very credibly and seriously by news sources. Well, except
0: I would argue, I mean, you're right. He was a news story. But if you actually look back, uh, those first news stories that were written was, this guy is going nowhere. And it was really about the fact that his... Um, the history of self-funding candidates and billionaires jumping in and him being there so late to the game all said to a lot of people, well, this is interesting and it's a news story, but really he's not going to be able to shake up the race. And his earned media really only took on a different character once, in fact, he started accruing um, support in the polls. And once he began to rise in the polls, and that is a function of both his owned and paid media, then the media narrative really began to change. And there was this, well, maybe he is the moderate alternative that the Democrats are looking for
2: interesting. yeah. I so so do you think that earned media had much of an impact on, on driving his campaign and was that a strategy that you think he calculated on?
0: I think it drove actually too many of the expectations too late in the game. In other words, it was precisely because he started doing so well in the polls that then they were able to get him onto the debate stage in Nevada and then everything of his campaign essentially hinged on his debate performance, both in terms of how the media saw him and in terms of how uh, Democrats who were planning to vote in those early primaries saw him.
2: The biggest story is the paid media, which is what set records and what a lot of people were. you know, debating on whether it was going to have a major impact on his viability as a candidate. He spent millions on marketing and on his digital ad spend, um, innovated with uh, his digital ad spend on Facebook, Um, the frequency, who he was trying to target. You know, he was on radio, television. Um, I would say the paid media probably had the biggest initial impact on crafting that image of him and that narrative um, because, you know, from a From a marketing perspective, I think his ads were very clean cut, very to the point, and hit on those points that you were speaking on earlier, the ones that go at um, President Trump's persona. um, And I think that is what sold him the most to start. Would you agree there? What's your take on the impact of his paid media?
0: Absolutely. And I also think that like, even if you just compare his ad um, during the Super Bowl with President Trump's ad during the Super Bowl, hands down, Bloomberg's ad was, I think, more effective and um, more impressive. It was much more persuasive as an actual ad that was targeting and discussing his record with respect to African Americans and his past um, experiences in New York.
2: Among your colleagues and among um, other professionals in politics and in political consulting, what were some of the reactions to um, his paid media and his advertising spend and the actual contents of that paid content?
0: Well, I think people were very surprised by his spend, um, just the overall dollars and where he was targeting. Um, personally, I, I wasn't because I, I understood what he was trying to do. He was trying to essentially leapfrog those first four um, primary states while every other Democrat is focused on them. And what he was trying to do was build up a national constituency so that on Super Tuesday he would, if you will, have his own blue wall that they would be hitting into, um, and he would have already shored up his support there. Um, and the, the amount of the spend is also not surprising because it's just expensive to advertise in the United States. Um, most Americans don't think about this and they don't um, kind of put it into perspective. But I think when you think about the Super Bowl and we realize that I think Mike Bloomberg spent, um, you know, I think he bought a one minute spot. If I recall, President Trump bought a 30 second spot. Those 30-second spots were $10 million. Um, And it's also true that, I don't know, I think Budweiser beer probably bought five or six spots. So we don't always think about what is the level of spending that actually commercial products that we buy all the time are engaged with to get our attention and to try to sort of bring our dollars to them. Um, Candidates are not asking for our money in the same way they're asking for our support and our vote but that money is not inconsequential Um, and you know it is pretty significant when you know we talk about the different levels of ad spends Um, I think Bloomberg was trying to do exactly what he did which is create enough of a national presence that he could move up in the polls with the idea that then he could get earned media, he could get um, sort of the owned media, because now more people would be going to his website and be a part of his email list, and then he could in fact get on that debate stage.
2: What are your thoughts on his strategy for owned media and some of the social media tactics he took, some of the um, content strategy that he put out there, how he tried to present himself in that content. Um, Because I know I'm a millennial and most of the people in my circle are very social media heavy. Um, You know, us mm-hmm. consuming his social media content was pretty cringy. Um, he worked with a lot of social media influencers to try to build his social brand and, uh, you know, pushed a lot of content where he was trying to be relatable on social media. I know to a lot of, you know, my bubble of people, it didn't sell very well. And uh, I'm interested to hear what you thought of his owned media and if it worked or if you have any more insight on where it and where it didn't work.
0: Well, so my bubble of people, which includes um, sort of more you know suburban educated women who have been involved in politics for a while, um, actually found a lot of his media refreshing and exciting, partly because they were never asked for money. So this is also where you know there probably is a difference in terms of what candidates do to different demographic groups. Um, you know, I I can't tell you the number of sort of women friends in New York who were getting emails saying, you know, come join us virtually in this um, town hall or do these different kinds of activities. And by the way, there's, there's no cost for this. You don't have to give $5. You don't have to give $200. And they were all... Um, kind of excited by the idea of a candidate who was appealing to them as someone that they knew as a former mayor, but also as somebody who was, you know, running a presidential campaign that was more about engagement than it was about their donations if they were trying to peel away some of the younger voters from the Bernie Sanders campaign, that wasn't going to happen. But really what I think they did, and they did effectively, and a lot of the polling data showed this, was that they did pull away a lot of the suburban white educated voters um, from Biden. And so I think there was a um, Sort of an opportunity there again for him, right? He he didn't do as well with non-white um, voters, but he did better than you might expect, right? In a lot of those early polls, when his his poll numbers were on the rise, you know, he was um, certainly competing with Sanders on some of the non-white. Numbers and he was above Klobuchar and above Buttigieg, so you could really see that some of this was resonating, um, and he was in a position, I think, to have brought together the moderate vote behind him, but he his record and his performance just were not sufficient enough um, in that Nevada debate when Biden surged and actually did well. And that was followed on by a win in South Carolina.
2: Something that I know you are um, an expert in is really understanding how narratives get shaped through the course of a campaign and when it matters to be paying attention to a candidate and when a candidate can get away with slip ups uh, and it won't affect their general trajectory. So, You know, I think when we compare even a Biden and a Bloomberg, um, you know, Bloomberg entering so late meant that his windows for selling himself as a candidate and Uh, parsing through his record were more focused and were much closer to the actual voting date that would affect his campaign versus, you know, a a Biden or a Sanders or a Warren where, you know, we had months to unpack their record and start to uh, come up with ideas of how we feel about them and whether we want to vote for them. So um, what are some of the key, like, literal moments during the campaign where a narrative gets shaped and when do you think the major stories matter most and when do your appearances matter most as a candidate because um at least uh with the folks that i was interacting with a big thing on our radar was uh bloomberg's record um and how that was going to affect his campaign um and resonate with the democratic base uh give me your thoughts on that on the narrative shaping
0: Well, I mean, look, there is a reality that if you're going to have a gaffe, it's better to have that gaffe earlier in the campaign (laughs) than not. Right. Um, You know, I always remember and think about the fact that in 2008, early 2008, you know, Barack Obama um, actually said, I've been to all 47 states. (laughs) you know, or something like, or 57 states, I guess it was. And he was, it was just literally a slip up. What he was thinking about was the fact that there were all of these democratic contests in addition to the number of states, right? So there's Democrats abroad, there's Guam, there's Puerto Rico, right? There are other contests that occur in addition to all the 50 states in the District of Columbia. And his gaffe, you know, sort of went right into that idea that, oh, no, Barack Obama is not really an American, right, which um, a whole series of individuals were trying to push forward as, as a really nasty rumor and narrative against him. But because it happened so early in the campaign, everybody forgot about it. And it was never really brought up. And it was not an issue because it was just gaff. But those gaffes um, late in the game, kind of right as things are going on, we can think about the Howard Dean scream um, on the night of the Iowa caucus, which kind of sunk his candidacy going forward um, in New Hampshire. Those moments in which sort of everyone's tuning in and everyone's trying to make their last minute decisions, um, it just becomes so important to be at your best. And I I think we see this in sports all the time, right? When we think about when the playoffs are, you you always want to be getting stronger as the season is going along. And by the time the playoffs come, you want to be playing your best game. And that is really the advantage that Bloomberg did not have because he did enter so late.
2: I love that you bring up the Howard Dean example because... Looking back on that, uh, you know, moment of, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I guess authenticity or just him being kind of goofy, uh, the fact that that had such a negative impact on his campaign, looking at if someone had a moment like that during this campaign season. I don't think it would have hit as hard. And it's so funny to look at how um, the political climate changes and how voters resonate with their candidates. Um, So I I guess that brings me to policy and perception. Um, How much of an impact do you really think the... uh, more difficult parts of Bloomberg's policy actually affected his campaign. So things like his stop and frisk policy, his um, harassment allegations, uh, some of his more um, uh, charged record. Uh, Do you think that impacted the narrative around him? Um, And, you know, do do you think that we're in a political climate where record really matters?
0: So I think his record mattered in that he didn't seem to be able to explain it, right? He, so he wasn't very good at um, even his discussions or apologies. You know, he, he sort of stumbled a number of times in trying to rationalize or explain away um, his record. And it made it very evident to most people watching that he still believed in what he had done. Um, you know, he kept saying things like, well, stop and frisk was right, but it got out of hand, or it went overboard. And, and that really wasn't going to be a satisfactory answer to Democrats, who fundamentally look back and say, that was a huge mistake, and it never should have been done. And he did not seem to be able to kind of describe or explain his past actions in a way that was compelling or persuasive. The same was true for um, sort of the non-disclosure um, agreements that he had entered into for the discussion um, and, the, and the way in which Elizabeth Warren kind of went after him in the debate just caught him really flat-footed, and it appeared as though his record was even more of a problem because he could not uh, explain what he did when he did it
2: another aspect of his uh, I guess earned media strategy or just his marketing strategy was his ability to rack up several endorsements to you know create that narrative that this is a trustworthy candidate. We should go with him. And here's why. You know, you don't have to hear it from me. Hear it from other people that you already trust. Uh, What do you think the impact was of his network of philanthropy and um, and I guess political grooming to a degree? And how did that impact um, the consent around his campaign? Because he did have many grants, training sessions, support packages over the last several decades for local city leaders who then turned around and endorsed him when he ran. Um, do you think that read as a sign of of goodwill to voters? Were they like, ah, I trust this local leader. Therefore, I understand. I now trust Mike Bloomberg. Or do you think it felt self-serving to um, the voter bloc? What's your perception on that?
0: Well, I mean, I think to a certain extent, um, it probably cuts both ways because there is a reality that pretty much every presidential candidate before they run. You know, they spend the entire midterm election before they run going out and raising money and trying to get money for those candidates and those congressional candidates that they uh, want um, to win and that then they hope once they do win, they will turn around and support their presidency. That is fundamentally part of politics. And I just think that in sort of understanding Michael Bloomberg, you have to understand that his whole life has been really a tremendous philanthropic enterprise. I mean, he had a huge business, and then he has done a ton of good public works um, and given substantial donations to major institutions. And I think that it would be foolish for anyone to think that those individuals um, whose lives he's changed through some of his philanthropy wouldn't have, you know, supported him. I mean, of course they're going to come back and say, you know, Bloomberg made a difference in our life. We'd love to help and make a difference in in his uh, candidacy. So I think some of it came off as genuine. I think, again, though, some of it fed into that narrative of he's trying to buy the election.
2: Do you have any thoughts on which way it cut more
0: um i don't think it was actually i would say sort of elevated enough to become a conversation um i do think that there are some things that really do break through obviously um you know his discussion about stop and frisk, and I think the um, non-disclosure agreements, so his policy side, and then his performance on the debate. I think all of those things really did break through. I think some of these other criticisms that came at him um, probably didn't. I think a lot of of people um, probably heard more when the president- you know, called him Little Mike than <laughs> um, anything else. Yeah. And I think many Democrats were pleased that sort of Bloomberg hit back at Trump with kind of an equally, um, you know, pushing back kind of idea. Like he, he came back and basically said, well, you know, where I come from, we measure your height from the neck up, you know, with this idea That Trump um, is just stupid. And so I do think, you know, some of these more trivial exchanges or issues oftentimes capture the national attention more than some of the more substantive critiques um, about uh, a candidate. Hmm.
2: So what do you think that says for long term strategy, then? around shaping narrative around a record um and around some of those little back and forth commentaries and how they are taken up by earned media how you should interact with them with your paid media strategy uh you know what are some takeaways
0: well right this is where um sort of there's an old saying about gaffes that you know gaff a gaff is when a politician accidentally tells the truth um And as awful as that statement is, what it's really getting at is a gaffe is really only problematic when it reveals a deeper truth about the candidate itself, or it plays into the narrative that is already believed about the candidate. We can think about, you know, whether it's past behavior or whether it's just a slip of the tongue, right? When... When Mitt Romney starts talking about how he knows NASCAR owners, um, you know, that doesn't play very well with the Republican electorate, who's like, why don't you actually say that you know NASCAR drivers or that you uh, follow NASCAR? What do you mean you know the owners? Um, But that played into this belief that Mitt Romney was an out-of-touch, wealthy businessman who didn't know anything about the lives of the people he was asking their his support from.
2: And then last point here, we're running out of time a little bit, but I just want to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, You know, a, a big part of the discussion we've had today is how different voting blocks, especially within the Democratic base, perceived Mike Bloomberg during his candidacy. How do you see different voting blocks voting? Uh, for their preferred candidate. And do you think that that impacted uh, Bloomberg's viability and where he found influence and where he didn't? And, you know, before you answer, I know it can be kind of difficult to generalize around entire voting demographics. So, you know, give give as much of an answer as you can to that, because I know it's going to be kind of kind of difficult to really parse through that. But just I don't know your general thoughts on on how the different demographic splits within the, the Democratic base really affected his candidacy.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things that was true is that when, you know, Bloomberg was doing well in the polls, he tended to actually be doing well with um, essentially, you know, white college-educated voters in the suburbs, but also um, rural and non-college-educated whites. So I think one of the things that was true is when you looked at that, you said, wow, that could be very important to a national general election. And what he was really doing was, to a certain degree, eating into um, Biden's white support um, that wasn't essentially uh, knowing where it wanted to land. And and so let me just kind of give you the example of the Arkansas poll, which happened um, on February 6th, 7th, Hendricks College released a poll of Arkansas. Arkansas did vote on Super Tuesday. And what you you pretty much saw in that poll was that Bloomberg, first of all, um, was leading in that poll. He had 20% of the support across the board. Um, Biden came in at 19, Sanders at 16, Buttigieg at 16, Klobuchar at five, and Warren down at nine. And what you really saw was that by the time of the election in Arkansas, Biden ended up wrapping up 41 percent. Bloomberg only came in at 17, Sanders at 22. And really what you saw was that Sanders grew a little bit. Um, You know, Bloomberg lost, essentially lost a little bit. But Biden basically doubled his support and how he doubled his support was Biden really took Buttigieg's support, which was essentially white male um, moderate voters in um, Arkansas. And then he took Klobuchar's support, which was sort of more white, rural um, and suburban women in Arkansas. And then he essentially ate into, you know, this larger category of Democrats who just didn't really know where to go. I mean, Biden still essentially carried African Americans, which were not all that strong for Bloomberg. And then Sanders still carried young people who were not strong for Bloomberg. So when you looked at Bloomberg, he was originally this potential Um, coalition candidate with people over 45, mostly white. And really, he could not expand. And in fact, he contracted and his support then went to Biden, which when you combine that with the African-Americans, helped him double his numbers in the South.
2: All right, Dr. Brown, that about does it for our piece of the show. Any final thoughts, any final takeaways on what we can learn from a a narrative crafting perspective a marketing perspective or a, a campaign um, strategy perspective on the now failed Bloomberg 2020 campaign
0: well I, th- I think the overall lesson is this if you are a billionaire and you want to run for office spend as much time on yourself as you spend on your campaign. And by that, I mean one of the things that was so evident to me when I watched the Nevada debate and I watched Bloomberg's performance, I knew that what had happened was he had become so used to being kind of the leader and the boss and being the one that most people around him basically said yes to and deferred to that he was not prepared for what goes on in a debate, which is a much more difficult thing. And there was likely no one in his circle who could tell him, no, Mike, you don't have this. You really don't have this. You don't know how hard and fast they're going to come at you. And you need to, like, take a step back and take your ego out of it and really think about what it means to have you live up to the expectations that your advertising has now set.
2: All right, Dr. Lara Brown, director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. Thank you for your time on the show. I really appreciate these insights.
0: Sure, thanks for having me on
2: just a fantastic conversation with dr brown Uh, i really appreciate her coming on the show we'll be right back with our second guest mr benjamin dixon host of the benjamin dixon podcast i'm looking forward to his insights and talking about that infamous stop and frisk audio and the implications of it here in just a few seconds be right back I'd like to go ahead and welcome Benjamin Dixon to the program now. Benjamin is the host of the Benjamin Dixon podcast and a prominent voice in independent progressive journalism and political commentary. He's the founder of Progressive Army, an independent digital publication and co-founder of the second incarnation of the North Star. Benjamin, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure getting to interview you. Uh, You know, I've been following along with your content and as soon as I decided to do a bloomberg 2020 episode it was pretty clear it's like all right i gotta try to get ben on the on the podcast so great having you on uh how are you holding up during the pandemic has uh you know your content flow been affected at all one podcaster to another
1: um, so, you know, we're holding up well, I um, mean, as well as could be expected. Um, we, we're we the lucky ones. We're the privileged ones. Uh, me and my family, we I'm able to do everything I need to do from home. Um, and so I have the luxury of being both quarantined as well as keeping my income coming in. So I have absolutely nothing to complain about. Um, I did get sick a little bit, but it was definitely not coronavirus. It just kind of struck my voice a little bit. I couldn't um, speak for more than five minutes without uh, my voice hurting. Uh, so that did kind of affect the content production. But I honestly, you know, the people who are out there having to work, um, there are essential workers, the people who are stocking our shelves and stuff. Um, I, I really wish that they that we had a society where they could also come home and be as, as safe as me and my family are.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I probably have one of the better scenarios during this whole pandemic. So can only be grateful and can only, uh, you know, put my time and energy into and helping those that are less fortunate. So exactly, yeah. exactly. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, for some context, the primary is effectively over. Joe Biden is most likely going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party, unless there is a switcheroo. <laughs> Who knows at this point? Yeah. Um, but looking back on the whole race, what do you think is the main takeaway from Mike Bloomberg's 2020 run? Just generally, if you had to, you know, reflect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hate to be so cold about it, but it means that the Democratic Party really has no soul. Um, They have no center. They have nothing that's guiding them. They have no North Star. They're willing to grab at anything they possibly can. Um, Well, actually, let me make an amendment to what I just said. Their North Star is um, making sure that we never go anywhere towards the left that we avoid any economic populism, that we avoid actually doing tangible material good for the working class. And now this is not for anyone who may be mistaken. What I'm saying is any type of direct or tacit endorsement of Republicans, um, then they must really never listen to my show, because I think um, that that Joe Biden uh, is the lesser of two evils. But we're dealing with some really significant evils here when the Democratic Party would go as far as embracing a, a a Republican oligarch in Mike Bloomberg uh, as a means of stopping Bernie Sanders uh, and at the time Elizabeth Warren. But most certainly he got into the race to stop Bernie Sanders. And um, I, I think it just speaks to um, where the Democratic Party has gone. They've gone so far that they would embrace someone who is analogous to Donald Trump uh, in terms of Michael Bloomberg.
2: Yeah. And, and I think it really shows um the the ends that the um, never trump mentality can go toward um, yeah. if your sole goal is we need to get the president out of office uh, if there isn't a moral center to that argument it can often lead to okay well we'll make sacrifices to uh, you know our, our own, ideology or or we'll uh, you know, okay we'll look over this thing if it means getting Trump out of office. But I think um, I think definitely for uh, the progressive voting bloc within the Democratic Party, Mike Bloomberg was almost certainly off the table um, for most of those voters. Um, But he did spark a lot of interest with um, general uh, Democratic voters, uh, folks that Uh, are on the, you know, hashtag vote blue, no matter who train. Um, I I think he did pique the interest of several voters. What do you think was the appealing pitch of Mike Bloomberg that did turn some heads and did get him ahead in polling for several months? So there's two sides to
1: the same answer for that question. It's the money, right? Um, People made the argument that he had the money to go the distance with Donald Trump. Um, And then uh, the fact that he had so much money that his advertisements were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. I mean... People had twelve uh, flyers in their mailbox. They had no way of escaping his commercials uh, if they watched network television. If they were sitting on their throne in the morning playing Words with Friends, there was an ad <laughs> from from Michael Bloomberg. So he was, it was there. he was everywhere, and so people embraced that as oh he has the resources necessary. To me, it it was a symbol of our broken system. The fact that he was able to just use his pocket change to basically buy. Uh, Or get close to buying this election had it not been for, um, you know, not to sound, you know, self-aggrandizing, but if it had not been for that audio uh, that I alley-ooped to Elizabeth Warren, who slam dunked him in the debate, um, he very well could have been the nominee that we're talking about now. Um, So it, it was the money. And that should be problematic because he was able to do so much with his pocket
2: change. He almost bought our entire democracy. So let's get into that audio. That's one of the main reasons why I wanted your perspective on the show in the first place is because you were the one who uh, broke or, or rebroke uh, the audio of Mike Bloomberg's infamous commentary on Stop and Frisk. Uh, for the audience, let's go ahead and listen to that now for some context. All of your 95, 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit in one MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops.
0: They are male, minority, 15 to 21. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city in And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of hands the hands of the people that get killed. So you've got to be spend the money, put a lot of cops in the street,
1: put those cops where the crime
0: is, which means in the minority neighborhoods. So it's one of the unintended consequences is people say,
2: oh my God. You are arresting kids from marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhood.
0: Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is.
2: So this audio along with the debate performance that you mentioned I think, were the catalysts for the decline in his campaign. It really started to pull the curtain back on um, the persona of Mike Bloomberg that was shown in all of his ads and and, um, digital content. And now we actually had to look at who really is Mike Bloomberg. Um, Could you give us some context on his stop-and-frisk record and why that audio we just heard matters you know why why does it matter that that this is how he approached stop and frisk and what were the repercussions of that policy
1: yeah i think the audio what made the audio so well so first of all yeah i I basically just rebroke it um or basically i found it and exploited it more with the platform that i had um and because this story was out five years ago and the text of the story was out. The transcript from what he said was out. The audio was buried on YouTube, and when I and by buried, obviously, I mean it took like three Google searches right, and I found right. it. So it wasn't like a really significant lift in terms of research. But folks weren't but it really was just, looking
2: for it,
0: as right. I think what
2: matters
1: there. Right, and and if you understood who Michael Bloomberg was when he was mayor of New York, you understood that there were more men. African-American men stopped for stop and frisk than actually live in the city of New York. It was this ubiquitous program that was that stalked and terrorized black and brown uh, young men. And, and so when you hear the audio, it does something significantly different than just reading uh, the transcript that was put out several years ago it it gives you first of all it, it animates it it brings life and you hear his voice and you hear the conviction with which he uh considered this worldview you hear the depth of his worldview, right you you can hear how he sat down and meticulously thought this thing through so as he described it in his presidential campaign it was a mistake and and it wasn't as um you know he dialed it back while he was in office which was not true he didn't voluntarily dial it back uh, he didn't roll it back he was forced to uh do so by a court order but if you listen to the audio you hear that this was a well thought out methodical world view and when you compared the links to which he like really crafted this this bigoted worldview, right? We we can't even we can't underestimate or downplay the significance of the bigotry there, right? He completely dismissed an entire community of people, two communities, right? Black and brown young men between the ages of, I think you said 15 to 25, and 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 just relegated them to being accosted by the police at the drop of a dime with no regard to their constitutional rights or their humanity. And so when you consider how much time he put into thinking about this compared to his uh, lackluster apology, you see that they're not commensurate. Like if if he was genuinely sorry for it, then he needs to show how he, he, he needed to show rather How he grew from this bigoted position. I do believe that there is redemption. I do believe that there's a way to uh, change your worldview. I've changed my worldview, but I can show you how I grew from my problematic politics before to where I am now. And all he did was say, I'm sorry, I want to
2: run for president. Right. And I think uh, I mean, I I don't want to speak generally for all voters, but I, I think folks are wise enough to see when someone you know steps out into the public scene and begins to apologize for things in their past when it is Mm -hmm. politically expedient and convenient to now address this whereas before it was better to just ignore it ever existed and I think that is what Mike Bloomberg was dealing with the most is there's I think audio and some interviews from as recently as early 2019 where he oh, yeah. went out of his way to still defend the policy yep. so when the audio rebroke um even if it was a few years old there were still other articles folks were linking to on social media and that i saw reported on that were like yeah well he didn't mention this and maybe he's apologizing for it but he was standing up for this policy up until very very recently which yeah I, I don't think inspired a lot of confidence uh, and was probably difficult for the campaign to spin as, oh, he really has, you know, um, changed his ways from this policy. Um, so when the audio was finally uh, picked up by um, news media, television media, and some of the bigger platforms, Was there a lot of reporting around it or, uh, you know, what did that reporting look like? How was it covered? Um, And were folks talking about it?
1: Yeah, you know, the answer to that question really depends on like the network, to be quite honest with you. Um, CNN, the very next day after we went from, you know, zero views to, I think, four million views by the next morning, CNN, the first thing they did was to attack me and to impugn my character uh, because I was a Bernie supporter. That means that there was something inherently biased in the video audio. When the hilarious thing is that, you know, he said what he said. Right. Regardless of who I support as an individual, um, you know, as I as I put that piece out on Twitter, you know, I didn't give any commentary in it other than to outline what he said. Um, But even if I did give really colorful commentary, he said what he said, but CNN decided to, uh, come after me. Um, but then to be fair to the media in general, everyone else, every other outlet was significantly interested in the story. Um, Uh, Well, actually, there there were a few outlets that were more interested in it because Donald Trump waded in. He retweeted it and called Michael Bloomberg a huge racist. And he quickly deleted that because, as it turns out, he was calling Mike Bloomberg a racist for the same policy that he supported while he was in New York. Um, But then after that, everyone else was really um, interested in the context of it, interested in his um, just like you outlined the fact that he was defending stop and frisk as recently, I believe, you Yeah, you're right. I think it was early 2019, you know, so it wasn't as though um, it it wasn't as though his. Apology could be taken uh, with the greatest uh, seriously because of how recently he defended stop and frisk, and that was really like the highlight of a lot of the interviews that I did. They really wanted to see um, how we can understand what this guy is really trying to do and what he really means now, based on what we found uh, in context of everything else. And then the last group of interviews that I did, um, I mean, it was it was kind of a whirlwind because it was a it was a significant story. But I was surprised that there was a group of interviews interviews interviewers who were more concerned about the damage that this audio would do to him um, because they felt like he would be the best
2: bet to fight against uh, Donald Trump. Right. And, um, you know, I I think this uh, this was the moment for Mike Bloomberg where the narrative around his campaign was no longer under the control of his campaign. Up until now, he had such a robust advertising platform and digital content platform that he was climbing steadily in the polls. Um, he was getting uh, rounds of endorsements from local leaders, uh, and it really seemed like he was going to be viable. And then once this audio broke, I think the conversation started to shift, and it was harder for Mike Bloomberg to distance himself from Mike Bloomberg, to put it simply, Um Do you think that based on anecdotal interactions or reception to your story or um, just any conversations you've had with voters or uh, anyone in the media sphere, do you think that this story and then his subsequent um, performance on the debate stage where Elizabeth hammered him on all of this stuff, do you think it affected the public perception around Mike as a candidate? Um, and, And if so, what specifically do you think affected public perception? Was it the policy record itself? Was it the stigma around it? Was it his inability to apologize for it? <laughs> Break down that dynamic in your eyes.
1: I'm going to use Elizabeth Warren here. I, I'm not a fan of Elizabeth Warren anymore um, because of a lot, you know, because of how the, how the um, primaries played out and whatever the case may be. But in that moment, I, I'm going to use Elizabeth Warren in that moment to give her all the credit for making him look like a really small, inept, Uh, impotent man Um, and she was able to eviscerate him before the entire nation and his image that he paid uh, up until that point it was half a billion dollars that he spent on advertisements to make himself look like he was bigger than life Elizabeth Warren took the alley-oop that I threw her and I mean she gutted him and he looked small he looked frail he looked like um He looked like what you would expect a person who who did not have adversity in his life for a very long time. He had it easy and he was not ready to have to answer to anyone. Can you imagine having to answer to someone for the first time and probably I don't know, he's 70 something. So let's say in like. 50 years. He actually had to answer to someone. Um, Elizabeth Warren really did the job even better than Bernie Sanders, like a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders. But Bernie Sanders got the first pass at him. If you remember the debate, Um, Bernie Sanders got the first response and he didn't nail it. Oh, but when Elizabeth Warren got a hold of him, um, she she changed the way America viewed that man in a matter of seconds.
2: So after that debate performance is, I think, when we really saw the campaign start to struggle. Um, How did you see the campaign react to that audio and to that performance? And what did you see as their strategy for overcoming this first PR battle? Because up until this point... It had basically been a frictionless race for the Bloomberg campaign, no issues in pumping out their content. Now they had to contend with uh, earned media that was very negative towards his campaign. So what was that strategy that you saw on their part to combat that?
1: Yeah, man, those were the good old days. Like that was before coronavirus, <laughs> man. The, the world is so different now. Um, I know. And, and then we're, we're, what we're talking about early February, and this is April now and that, we're, that we're speaking, Um The world was such a simpler place where all Michael Bloomberg had to do was roll out all of his black friends. Um, He just started dropping endorsements after endorsement after endorsement from black leaders um, who supported him. Uh, And and that was his strategy. Like, I think that they were fully prepared for this, but what they weren't prepared for was how much this story would, would stick Right. They 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 wrote out, uh, uh, I think, like seven endorsements the first the next day. And then they wrote out an endorsement every day after that. Um, and what we did, honestly, at that point, I did shift. I I made a hard shift from just reporting it to activism. And what we did was we targeted every single person who endorsed and um, endorsed uh, Michael Bloomberg and asked them, are you standing by this? Are you standing by what he said? Because if you can stand by that, then we can't stand by you. And we did a a really, um, significant pressure campaign to make people have to at least go on the record. Like you, you can't. You cannot support a man who hurts so many people and expect to be able to ride through the popularity of making an endorsement of a billionaire, you know. And so their strategy was to roll out as many black uh, leaders as they could. And then we countered that strategy with using social media to make every single one of them have to answer for it. Um, and ultimately, this was in the week. This was in the week between the time we dropped the audio and the um, the debate. That was a really hectic week. And uh, we 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 tweeted. I mean, we had thousands upon thousands of people tweeting at them. um, And we had a couple of people really come to terms with with their endorsement. We did not capture anyone to. We did not get anyone to revoke their endorsement, but we did get people having to at least discuss the situation. And so, our, can- our pressure campaign, I think it was, um, I think it was a-, a component, but it still was not enough. What needed to happen is exactly what happened, which was one of the presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren, just she, she put the nail in the coffin for it. But they did have a strategy and they rolled it out and they rolled it out brilliantly while we-, we were just on social media, just making every person that they rolled out. We made them pay um, pay
2: a political price because this is politics. So do you think that in the long run? That strategy of theirs was effective or was it ineffective um, toward you know uh, uh, convincing enough voters to stick with him? Yeah, no, I think it was
1: ineffective, right? I, I think it was ineffective because it all it did was give us more targets. Um, because he, here, here's the thing: when I, I, I'm speaking in this language, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm speaking in an activist language, right? Because there's under no circumstances. Let me put it like this. I think Joe Biden is the worst pick second to like Michael Bloomberg. However, there is a huge gap between what Michael Bloomberg represents and what Joe Biden represents. Right. So a lot of people are going to be they're going to go vote for Joe Biden. It is what it is. Bernie lost. We have to suck it up and keep pushing a progressive agenda later on. But Michael Bloomberg was a very unique Threat To me, that was that was analogous to Donald Trump. And so every person that he put up to say, hey, I have black friends to us. It became an opportunity and a a necessity. Right. It was our job as as people of good conscience and, and activists to say, oh, I'm sorry, Bobby Rush. I know you're with the Black Panthers in the past. Are you going to stand by this man? And if you stand by Michael Bloomberg, then we can no longer stand by you. And that was the campaign. So the strategy that they had was. Was ineffective because we did not allow it to have enough time. Like we, those those endorsements could not saturate the news cycle without us just hammering our opposition to them because of Michael Bloomberg. So I think it was a smart strategy. It was basically the only thing that they could do. But there were so many people mobilized at that point, well beyond me. I mean, people had taken it into their own hands. There were other organizations um, that were behind the scenes, just really putting pressure on these candidates. Uh, some of them were. Were candidates and some of them were established just leaders in the community. Um, and so I think it was a smart strategy, it was the only thing the Bloomberg team could do. But the momentum behind the people who opposed him for very valid reasons was just too much for them to overcome with that strategy in particular.
2: All right, last main point, uh, for this chunk of the conversation, Benjamin. Uh, we're in an era, I'd say, of anti establishment politics where voters resonate with candidates that look to shake up the status quo um for the republican nomination in 2016 that clearly was a big part of what put donald trump over the edge um it's also what made bernie sanders's campaign so popular both in 2016 and 2020 though the anti-establishment dynamics of the republican party and the democratic party are clearly very different and we saw that in the fact that um Bernie Sanders did not win the nomination. So uh, it does create some cognitive dissonance when uh, when it feels like we're in an era of anti-establishment politics. However, Joe Biden, who is the opposite of anti-establishment, is now going to be the nominee. Right. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how much do you think voters care about policy and care about record in your opinion? And how do you think that impacted the perception of Bloomberg as a candidate? Because if we're still seeing uh, an establishment candidate make it through to the nomination, um, you know, does does that really vouch for the era that we're in? And does that mean that Bloomberg lost not because of his record, but because of something else?
1: You know, I really appreciate that question because it's stimulating thoughts in my mind that really gives me... Um, well, it gives him something good to say sure. uh, on Twitter. On Twitter, yes, love it. <laughs> you know?
2: Hey, tag me. <laughs> so, I'll
1: tag you in it, right? Uh, because here's the deal: um, the establishment voters have the luxury of not caring about policy. None of them. N- nobody who supported Michael Bloomberg can mention one policy that he stood for that was actually significant, with the exception of his gun policy, which in fact, which to me was rather draconian, draconian. Right. Um, I, I am with I am for gun control, but not in the same method that he did it in New York City, which was very authoritarian. Um, But outside of the gun control measures, there was no one who can tell me what Michael Bloomberg stood for that was in sync with what they stood for. And so what we're dealing with is a whole lot of establishment voters who really have the luxury of engaging in politics as a game. Versus the people, the 22 million people who are now unemployed in the last four weeks since the um, since the pandemic broke here in this country. They don't have the luxury of sitting around playing games with politics. It's a matter of life and death for a lot of them who have now lost their health insurance, their employer based health insurance. And so the difference here is if to answer your question is how could an establishment player break through? it's because establishment voters have nothing better to do than to play politics online all day long. Whereas the rest of us, we're really in the fight of our lives. Like there are people who now don't have access to insurance who need it for chemotherapy, right? We're not talking about games here. We're talking about life and death. But those people who are really entrenched in in in, in this day-to-day life, this hustle, just trying to make the next check so that they can pay their bills, they do not have the luxury or the the privilege to engage in politics hardly at all because they're so tied up in just survival right and so if you want to know how it is that an establishment player can win it's because the establishment has the luxury of sitting around and playing politics and watching it unfold on msnbc like it was espn whereas the people who are keeping our country afloat right now they are they're having to do it at the cost of some of them their lives and so the difference is is that we ha- as progressives we're going to have to cut through all the bs and cut to the people who need the policies as a matter of life and death. Here's the thing. When you start tapping into, one, we we have to find a way to access them. They're not on Twitter, right? They're not on social media because they're at work. And honestly, like maybe one of the best ways to get some of them, uh, at least before the pandemic, would have been like AM talk radio, because at least they could, you know, it it, it was just a tried and true method of reaching uh, the masses uh, that really a lot of people don't have the luxury of sitting around on their computer all day. Right. They're out there, you know, delivering stuff for us. They're out there delivering the mail for us. And so if if the question is, is how do we change this paradigm where we're in an anti-establishment movement, but the establishment keeps winning? it's because we spent a lot of time trying to convince establishment voters to no longer be establishment voters when we should have realized it's just a game for them and we've got to get out in these streets and organize the people for whom politics is a matter of life and death
2: yeah and that, that's interesting because it puts the importance of policy and record um it kind of a a tier system where depending on um on how d- I guess dedicated or committed you are to the politics of the Democratic Party as an institution. Right. Um, you know, Mike Bloomberg's record and policy becomes less important um, because, right. at the end of the day, what matters most is getting the blue players across the finish yep. line versus the red players. And and I think that does bring up a very important dynamic. Um, you know, getting getting the voters. That will care about these policy differences to even know about the policy differences and then to vote against those policy differences takes. So much work. And yeah. clearly um, the two progressive campaigns um, during this cycle were unable to do that. Both had different strategies. I think the Sanders campaign came much closer, but oh, yeah. even, you know, holistically was not enough to push the Sanders campaign over the finish line. And I I think it does speak a little bit to, um, you know, voters um, that. I guess are, are are more committed to the party. I think there are some that need yeah. that kind of um, normative, um, conversational talking point that speaks to hey, you know, we are on your side as well. We're not trying to shake things up too much. And I think that worked for Bloomberg for a while until the narrative got out of hand. And then I think for those voters, the ones that, uh, you know, you're calling establishment voters, you know, I I don't know if I would actually call them establishment voters necessarily, because I think that implies that they have uh, more power in the process than they really do. Um, So I might refer to them as just a vote blue no matter who, or a traditional Democratic voter, um, but probably started to lose faith in him to be able to cross the finish line. Uh, I don't think that they stopped wanting to vote for him because of his policy record, because... I don't think Joe Biden's policy record is that different. I right. mean, it, 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 <laughs> it reflects a lot of the same problems. So really, I think it's more of a confidence thing. Right. They started to lose confidence in his ability to uh, carry the torch. And I think that's really what yeah. cost him is that he looked inept. He looked incapable yeah. of leading the charge and therefore he couldn't lead the charge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And God bless her. Not really a fan of or support of hers anymore. But Elizabeth Warren, she did that. She made sure America saw him as a small little man that he actually is. He just happens to be a billionaire, which gives him
2: just a a slight boost right a slight (laughs) advantage right (laughs) yeah all right benjamin dixon thank you so much for joining us again benjamin dixon is the founder of the benjamin dixon podcast of progressive army and the co-founder of the second incarnation of the north star if folks want to learn a little bit more about you and your work and follow along what are some social media channels and some places to listen to your show
1: Yeah, they can check out the podcast every day on any anywhere you get podcasts from iTunes to iHeartRadio and Spotify. You can find the podcast. And if you want to just follow all of my uh, shenanigans, you can come to Twitter at Benjamin P. Dixon, um, where we,
2: you know, we get a little more grimy than we do on the podcast. (laughs) Gotta love the grime. All good. (laughs) All right. Benjamin Dixon, appreciate the time.
0: Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for having me.
2: And just as quickly as the episode came, the episode went. So folks, that's it for this episode of Ratified, exploring the Bloomberg 2020 campaign, the marketing, the strategy, the digital advertisements around it, and really looking at the impact of what it meant to have the 12th richest man in the world run for the presidency and how he resonated with voters and where his strategy failed. This was really one of my favorite episodes we've done of the show so far. Great thoughts from Dr. Laura Brown and Benjamin Dixon. We're not going to have a bear brief at the end of this episode because we ran so long. So we're just going to go ahead and wrap it up I'll leave some of the takeaways with y'all. You know, we definitely got uh, a lot of analysis from Dr. Laura Brown. We got a progressive point of view from Benjamin Dixon. But both of them really brought their perspective on how different pieces of Bloomberg's strategy impacted his outcomes. So... I'll just say, folks, take away some of those strategies from this conversation. What worked for Bloomberg? What didn't work for Bloomberg? And even with the billions behind him, why wasn't he able to cross the finish line? I think what we saw is that the image of Bloomberg didn't match Bloomberg himself. And there were several little missteps and big missteps that really solidified that cognitive dissonance for voters. And we'll just have to see how after setting records for spending, how self-funded campaigns will continue to operate in the United States. And if we'll ever see another Mike Bloomberg-esque figure enter the race. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of Ratified. Make sure you go to our new Spotify page. We have our own page now on Spotify, finally. So look up Ratified on there. Uh, You'll find the channel. Subscribe. You'll see all the previous episodes. And stay tuned for more episodes. They should be coming out more frequently, not as much delay between each one. That was, you know, kind of a coronavirus-related pause. So stay tuned, subscribe, make sure you're leaving a rating and a comment wherever you're listening to your podcast content, and make sure to head to marketscale.com slash industries to get a look at all of our other shows as well. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.